Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Now, Matthew chapter 2. Today, we will finish up our Christmas series. We have been looking at who this baby is, who this baby was, lying in that manger so long ago. We've considered several crucial questions about Jesus. And we have seen that he was no ordinary child. And he was no ordinary man. And he was on no ordinary mission. The first question we asked was, who is Jesus? And we saw that he is the Son of God, that he is equal with God the Father in his nature, in his works, in his power, in his authority, and in his honor. That he is worthy of the worship that we give to God because he is God. The second question we considered is, why did he come? Why did he come? And the answer to that very simply is to save his people from their sins. And with that in mind, the third question we asked was, what did he do? How did he accomplish that? We saw from Isaiah that he laid down his life on the cross, that he bore the wrath of God on sin as a substitute for his people so that his people might be made righteous. God did not just snap his fingers and make sin go away. That would not have been just. God sent a substitute to die in the place of his people so that justice could be served and so that his people could be saved. And so that brings us to our final question for today, and that is, how are we to respond to this? How are we to respond? We cannot, we cannot have an encounter like this with Jesus and not respond. Either we will believe in him as Lord or we will reject him. So how must we respond to all of this? To help us consider this question, we're going to look at a very unusual encounter A very unusual encounter. We're going to look this morning at the story of the wise men. The story of the wise men and their visit to Jesus. This is a familiar story. If you go out and purchase a nativity scene anywhere, you're going to find most likely three wise men included in that scene, right? I hope for sake of biblical accuracy that you put those wise men on the other side of the room. When you set it up, Carrie laughs at me, but that's what I do. They're there. They're just not there. And we'll see why in a few minutes. But it's a familiar story. But the the unfortunate side of it is it is a common story. And after centuries of retelling and after acknowledgement that we don't have a whole lot of biblical detail about them, there has arisen a lot of legend about these wise men. And so sometimes it can be difficult to discern truth from error. And my intention this morning is not to refute every detail about the wise men, but to point us to what the point of the passage really is. But as we do, we need to consider who they were. Who were these wise men? How many were there? From where did they come? How did they know what they knew? What was the star? This is a fun week to talk about that, isn't it? What was the star? And we could ask many more questions, but 
we may not be able to answer very many of them strictly from the biblical text because it just doesn't tell us a lot of that. There are very few details. But I hope that by this point you understand that the reason for that is because they're not the point of the story. Jesus is the point of the story. Who he is, what he came to do, and this visit is really just to show us a little bit more about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And that's the important point. So, we're going to read this curious story, verses 1 through 12 of Matthew 2. We're going to consider the details about the characters of the story. Then we're going to watch the story develop. And then at the end, we're going to bring it together and consider some important lessons, uh, really one major lesson that we need to draw from this passage. So follow along as I read from Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I would love for us to be able to study the whole chapter, because it tells us more about this man, Herod, but... We'll be here for a very long time if we do that. So we're just going to focus on verses 1 through 12 here. I want us to consider, first of all, the characters that are involved in this story. Who are the characters? Who are the ones playing a part in this story as it unfolds? And the first character that we must see, of course, is Jesus. Why do I mention that? Because Jesus is, in terms of, the literary development of this story, he is a passive character, right? Jesus is just there, okay? We're not seeing him speak. We're not seeing him do anything in the passage. He is just there, but we dare not overlook him because as we've seen all along in all of this, Jesus is the main character of the story, even if he is not playing a direct role in these verses. But the whole point of this is for us to know him, and to worship Him. Just like whether we are in church actively praising the name of Jesus or living in any other aspect of our lives, 
wherever we are, he is always the point of the story, right? And he ought to be always the point of our story. And so Jesus is not to be just assumed. He is to be mentioned. He is to be acknowledged as the ultimate character of the story. But then the next characters that we meet are the Magi. And I do call them the Magi because that's what the word is in the original language. Verse 1 puts it this way, wise men from the east. And this is where we begin to see a lot of legends and confusion come into the story. For instance, most people assume that there were three of them, right? Because there were three gifts. And legend has it that their names were Casper, Balthazar, and Melchior. Now, do we know that from the text? No, we don't know that. We also see that they are often represented as racially diverse, representing the three sons of Noah. But all of that is speculation. It could be true. We don't know. We're not told specifically. But in truth, there were probably more than three. And they likely traveled in a large caravan with a cohort of soldiers with them. So, in your nativity scene, when you set the wise men on the other side of the room, go out to the toy store and buy a few extra horses and see if you can find some little soldiers and surround them. And you can have a lot of fun with this, right? No, likely there would have been somebody traveling with them. We don't know their names, so we don't really know how they got to Jerusalem. All we really know is what this text says. Now, what we do know about them is that uh, the word that is used for them is magi. And that gives us a little understanding of who they were. Yes, our English words magic and magician come from this word that is used for these wise men, the magi. And there is some help from the Old Testament in understanding who this group of magi are. It wasn't just these who came to Jerusalem. There was a whole group of people, a whole segment of a population called the magi. It is said that they first appeared as far back as ancient Babylon. Okay, so that helps us a little, a little in knowing where they came from. So they were prominent in ancient Babylon in the Medo-Persian Empire and in that area, so that now we understand when we see them coming from the east, or in some versions of the story, coming from the Orient, we shouldn't necessarily think China. We should be thinking more along the lines of modern-day Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Syria. Now, in that culture, as we've been able to deduce from historical sources, it seems that the Magi were a sort of priesthood in that culture. They were highly influential. They were sort of like the Levites in Israel, except they didn't worship Jehovah. In fact, these magi gained their influence by becoming experts in astronomy and astrology, which would have factored much into their religious system. But they also became experts in, er in areas like science, mathematics, history, and more. And because of their expertise, they became highly influential in political matters in their own society. They became political advisors, so much so that when we read in Scripture of the law of the Medes and the Persians, it is likely that it was the Magi that helped put those laws and that understanding 
in place. They had become so influential that they had been said to be the kingmakers of that era, of that region. What that means is that no one rose to power without the advice and consent of this group known as the Magi. Well, that certainly sheds some light on their visit to Jesus now, doesn't it? We can read some of that back into the story, but there's more. The influence of the Magi in the Medo-Persian and Babylonian empires had become incredibly powerful. But then, go back to the Old Testament and to the book of Daniel. We're going to find out where this world of the Magi and the world of the Jews collide. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, after Daniel, the Jewish captive, the Jewish prophet who was captive in that land, after he gives King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, the correct interpretation of his dream, how does the king reward Daniel? Daniel 2.48 tells us, The king gave Daniel high, or, high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. The prophet Daniel, as an Israelite who was a captive in Babylon, rose to one of the highest positions in the empire. One of the highest positions of influence, probably the highest position next to the king himself. He was the overseer of the wise men, or the magi. And that is highly significant for our text today, because it likely tells us where the wise men got their information from and how they knew what was going on in Bethlehem of Judea. The influence of Daniel and other Jews during their captivity apparently had been so effective and so influential that, that centuries later, they are still well familiar with Old Testament prophecies and with the expectation of this Savior King. So how did the wise men know about the Jews and their expected king? It probably began with prophecies that had been revealed even in the time of Daniel. These Jews, and Daniel in particular, had a powerful and positive godly effect on the society around them and with their pagan neighbors. Well, we could say a lot more about the Magi, but we, we need to keep moving and I think you get the idea. So, the next character in the story that we meet is Herod. Herod. In the text, he is called Herod the king. He was the representative of the Roman government in the area of Judea and really over all Israel. This man was known as Herod the Great. He was the first of several Herods to have authority in that era. Area. His father, his father's name was Antipater, and he had been appointed by Julius Caesar to govern Judea on behalf of the Roman Empire. And as Antipater reigns in Judea, he works it out for his son Herod to become the governor of Galilee. And as he's the governor of Galilee, he establishes himself as a powerful leader and as loyal to the Roman Empire. He even was known for putting down several Jewish rebellions in that area. He was a shrewd politician and over time was able to earn Rome's trust 
and became not just the governor of Galilee, but now as the king or the, the sub-king or whatever you want to call him over all of Israel, Galilee and Judea alike. He had spent three years fighting to establish his reign and authority there. He had worked hard for his kingdom. He had had to fight much. And so as you might expect, he was incredibly paranoid. He was scared to death every moment that there was a threat to his kingdom somewhere. And the truth is, there probably always was a threat to his kingdom somewhere. Now, Herod was not Jewish. Herod was, as the scripture says, an Idumean. That means he was an Edomite. Now, you think back to the history of the Jews, and you know that's not a good thing, right? Edomites were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, and they were often at odds with the Jews. And no doubt the Jews would have resented the appointment of an Edomite to rule over them. And so, trying to placate the Jews, Herod married a Jewish woman, as if that would really accomplish much, right? And in addition to that, he did all kinds of things to try to appeal to them. Um, he, he sold gold from the palace in order to feed the poor. He built theaters and racetracks for entertainment. He even rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem and many more things. But none of that could hide the fact that he was a cruel and ruthless ruler. Anytime he sensed a political threat, he would find a way to kill that threat. So much so that at various points in his reign, he not only killed his own high priest, he killed his mother-in-law. And on top of that, he killed his own wife and several of his sons. He was ruthless. And all of that behavior is consistent with the Herod that we meet in Matthew chapter 2. Because later in the chapter, we would find that in response to the news that the Magi brought, Herod barbarically kills all the male children under the age of two simply to suppress whatever threat he sensed. He was a sick, cruel, and evil man. Now we, again, could say more about Herod, but I'm just laying that out. Now I think you get the idea. And we need to move on to the next characters that we meet in the story, and they are the religious and political leaders. They play a minor role, but we see them here advising Herod. Verse 4 calls them the chief priests and the scribes of the people. That covers a diverse group of people that would have included the chief priest. It would have included all former living chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin. They were the ranking religious officials who also had significant political influence in Israel. We don't have time to go into a lot of the details about them here, but what we need to note here is that they were experts in the Old Testament law and Old Testament scriptures, which means when Herod asks them about this Messiah and where he's to be born, they're going to know. But it's interesting to notice that while they know the scriptures and they know how to answer his questions, they don't seem to care about the answers. They tell Herod where the king of the Jews is to be born, and yet we see nothing of worship in their response. In fact, throughout the life of Jesus, we see them continually rejecting him, 
ultimately becoming hostile to him and crying out for his execution. How ironic that these experts in the scriptures will later become the enemies of the Savior. But there we have it. These are the characters of the story. Jesus, the central figure, the Magi from the East who came to worship him, Herod who is bent on killing him, and the religious leaders who stand in the middle. And so now we turn our attention to the story itself. And the story begins with the arrival of the Magi in Jerusalem. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Behold, that's an important word in Scripture. Listen up. Get this. Magi from the east came to see Jesus. And now the question is, when did they come to see Jesus? How long after his birth? Well, we can point to several things in Scripture, details that would help us kind of pinpoint the, the time frame here. Uh, I won't go into all of that, but as you, as you put all of it together, it becomes clear they, they weren't at the manger. They didn't come to the manger. They would have been traveling about that time. Uh, suffice it to say that it was sometime after 40 days, sometime short of two years. Okay? Mary would have waited 40 days for her purification and then to present him in the temple. Um, and, and there are some other details that would kind of confirm that and explain what that would look like. And then Herod killing the children under the age of two tells us he wasn't older than two uh, based on what he had discerned from the Pharisees and Sadducees and from the Magi. So somewhere in there between 40 days old and under two years. Now, when these wise men or these Magi arrive, that would have been a pretty big deal. It would have been a large, ornate entourage entering Jerusalem. And they didn't sneak in. This was a, a highly visible, conspicuous arrival. And verse 2 tells us when they got there, they kept asking, where is he who had been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And the idea of the text there is that they didn't just ask once. They were going all around town asking where this new king was. Can you imagine the stir that would have created? Can you imagine the buzz all around the city, particularly amongst the population that did not appreciate their current king? Can you imagine? All of a sudden, this idea of a new king is spreading all around Jerusalem. And frankly, I think the Magi would have found it surprising that no one knew what they were talking about. How is it that the men from the east know, but the people in Jerusalem don't? What is going on here? So, again, how did the Magi know? Well, again, the testimony of Daniel the prophet. They had the Old Testament scriptures. And not only that, they had them explained, at least a portion of them. But that's the starting point. But then notice that they also mentioned that they saw his star when it rose. Now, what in the world is that? Or I guess I should say, what in the universe is that? What is that star? There have been many suggestions, many uh, 
assumptions about this star. Some have said that it was an actual star. Some have said it was an angel or that it was some general bright light in the sky. And some over the years have even put forward the idea that this was some alignment of Jupiter and Saturn that created a bright anomaly in the sky that directed them to where the baby was. Kind of like what some of you observed last week, right? Did any of you look at that? You guys, I couldn't see it because we were in Northeast Ohio and Northeast Ohio doesn't get clear skies this time of year. It was all covered in clouds and so we couldn't see it. But someone in my neighborhood took a picture of it and posted it. So I have a picture of it on my phone. That, was it as spectacular as I would have thought it would be? Some of you are saying no. Would you have been able to find Bethlehem? I don't know. Still a cool thing to think about. It was over 800 years ago that that last happened, right? Well, I don't think that it, that's what it was. It could have been, so I'm not going to deny it. And if you want to believe it was, fine, go ahead, because... But I don't think it was because it seems to me that there was something supernatural going on here. Um, because, and, and, and I think it was something more akin to the Shekinah glory that we find in the Old Testament that represented the presence of God among his people. I'm not saying it was this huge cloud. I'm just saying I think there was something supernatural that God was revealing his presence and he was directing these men to where the child was. And verse 9 talks about this star moving and settling over the place where Jesus was. And so I think there was something maybe more going on there. God was drawing these magi to Christ. And whatever that anomaly was, it pointed them to the scriptures. That's the important thing to see. It wasn't the revelation of truth in and of itself. It pointed them to the scriptures, to the prophecies about the Messiah. And it alerted them to the, the fact that he was born and now it was time to move. And it appears that they didn't just follow the star, but that they believed the prophecies. And that they were indeed looking for the Messiah, even though they were not Jews. And what's more, it is clearly stated that their intention in coming to Jerusalem was to worship this newborn king. That's astounding to me. They were looking at the scriptures. They were looking for the arrival of the king for the purpose of worshiping him, to fall down before him and to acknowledge him as the true king and to give him the honor that is his due. So this stir in the city from the questions and the comments made by the Magi doesn't just affect the population of Jerusalem, but it makes its way all the way up to Herod. And so in verse 3, we read, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, understandably so. And all Jerusalem with him, understandably so. That's really a, a pretty big understatement there, that they were troubled. Herod had spent years securing his hold on the Jews and on this territory. And a large part of his struggle had been against the nations from the east, as well as the population itself. And now these men from the east, kingmakers no less, arrive in Jerusalem and declare that there is a new king of the, Jew of the Jews. Surely this would infuriate Herod, who is already paranoid enough. But this didn't just trouble Herod. This troubled all the Jews with him. 
Why? Well, can you imagine why? First of all, on one level, I think it's because the Jews might be thinking, oh no, here comes another war with the East. But I think even closer to home for them is they understand that Herod is going to be troubled. And when Herod is troubled, people die. They've already seen that. Blood gets spilled. Life gets miserable. If Herod hears about a new king who is a rival to himself, there is no telling what kind of bloodshed the people will suffer. So this is troubling news, no doubt. What is Herod going to do? Well, verse 4 tells us, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he gets these these Jewish religious leaders and advisors together, and he wants to find out, according to their Jewish religion, what these magi are talking about. Remember, Herod's not a Jew. He wouldn't have understood the Jewish religion the way the Jews did. But he would have heard enough by now to notice that there, this is some sort of Christ, this is some sort of Messiah or anointed Savior that the Jews were expecting. So he asks, what are they talking about? And what did the advisors say to him? Well, in verses 5 and 6, they read to him a specific prophecy from the Old Testament that tells him where this Savior, this Christ, is to be born. In verse 5, they tell him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Do you know where that quote is from? Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. It's not word for word, but it is an explanation of that prophecy. That there is to be a Messiah, a Savior, an anointed one from God Himself who will save His people from their sins. And He would tenderly lead His people in contrast to Herod's leadership, right? He will be a complete contrast to this tyrant of a king. And that Savior would be born in Bethlehem. Now, to this point, I don't think the wise men have been a part of this conversation. And apparently, what they had seen so far was enough to get them into the land of Judea and its capital, Jerusalem, but they maybe couldn't figure out Bethlehem just yet. But they hadn't been a part of this conversation with Herod and the advisors But now that he has gotten his information from the scriptures and from the Jews, now Herod begins to scheme. What am I going to do about it? And part of that scheme involved inviting the wise men in for a conversation. And so verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. It must have been some task sneaking these wise men into the court of Herod, doing this secretly. But it had to be that way in order to keep the people from getting stirred up. Now, Herod was no friend of these magi, and I suspect that on any other day he would have killed them on the spot, but he had something he wanted from them first. So he finds a way to arrange a meeting, and then he ascertains from them what time the star Appeared, And the idea there is that he pressed for details. He wants specifics. Not because he cares about their significance. 
not because he truly cares about worshiping this child as he says he does, but because he wants to locate this new king, identify him, and eliminate him. He's not interested in worship. He's not interested in prophecy. All he cares about is preserving his kingdom and suppressing all threats. Now, the Magi don't necessarily know that. Maybe they do, but we're not sure that they did. So they cooperate. And after getting the information he needs from the Magi, he doesn't just dismiss them. He sends them on an errand. Verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. It's subtle. It's deceptive. It's manipulative. Because we know he has no intention of worshiping this newborn king. But he sends the Magi out as his errand boys to subtly and quietly find this child so that he can do with him what he wants to do. This is Herod's plot. The one whom the Magi sought, Herod views as a threat. And so in a paranoid and ruthless attempt to maintain his grip on his kingdom, he wants to identify and locate this child and eliminate him, as we see at the end of chapter 2, as he had with so many before. And the Magi have no idea until verse 12. So, in verse 9, after listening to the king, we read, they went on their way. The Magi leave Herod's presence, and they go and they find this newborn king. Now they know he's in Bethlehem. I don't know that that was enough to get them exactly to the house. They know the general direction, probably not the details. And so that's where we find again in uh, verse 9 that the star that they had seen when it rose went before them. So here comes the star again. It shows up and it leads them and it comes to rest right over the place where the child was so that they were able to figure out where this child is. And then in verse 10, we read, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The text there in the original language is piling up superlatives, as if it's saying there is no way to explain how excited the Magi are at the sight of this star. Remember, they had come to worship him this newborn king, and the star is evidence that God was honoring that and leading them to the place where he was. And this was a source of great joy for them. And I look at these magi and I think, is that not the way it should be for all of us, right? I mean, God's people were going to reject him. The Jews were, gonna, were going to ignore him. But the Magi, these kingmakers from the East, with just a little bit of the Old Testament that they had that pointed, know enough to know this is the king of all kings, let's go worship him. And like the Magi, we all were created to know God and to worship him. That is what they are showing us. And we have been given the privilege of knowing Christ and of worshiping him. This is the highest and ultimate joy of God's people. It is not a burden for us. It ought to be our joy and our greatest life pursuit. And that leads us to verse 11, where the Magi finally find Jesus. 
And then we read, and going into the house, there's another evidence we know they weren't at the manger. They went into the house. And they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Finally, at last, they had found the one for whom they had so diligently searched. Listen, all who seek him, find him. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. These guys crossed the desert with nothing but a star and Old Testament prophecies. They sought him. They found him. And you know what? Some of the people who were right in front of his face never found him. But all who seek after God will find him. And all who long to know him will indeed know him. And as much as these magi would have enjoyed talking with Mary and Joseph, and I'm sure they did, their focus was on Jesus, and their worship was directed only to him. To focus on anything else is to focus on something less. This wasn't about Mary. This wasn't about Joseph. This wasn't about the manger. This wasn't about uh, the, the journey from Galilee to Bethlehem and, and all of that. that and all of that leads up to what the real point was. This is about Jesus and worshiping Him as Savior and Lord. And that is true not just then, but that is true of every age. Beloved, is Jesus the central focus of your life? Is He your greatest joy? Is it your life's mission and drive like these wise men to find Him and know Him and worship Him? And now in the rest of verse 11, we see what their worship looked like. We sang about this this morning too. Then opening their treasures, they offered Him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Odd gifts to give a child, right? But significant ones to give the newborn king. And it's not that they finished their worship and then gave him the gifts. No, the giving of the gifts was their worship. That was their worship. That's an important observation, and it is significant. Worshiping God is not just about the songs that we sing on Sundays. And it's not even just about the songs that we listen to in the car throughout the week. In fact, worshiping God is not purely just about music. We've fallen into that trap in the church these days, haven't we? We have worship and then we have everything else. And worship is just, no, worship is not just the music. Beware of that trap. Because worship encompasses much, much more. True worship involves the giving of all that we have and all that we are to God for His glory and for His mission and for His use. Any well-known country singer can sing good Christian music, and they do. That doesn't mean they're worshiping God. And here... There is a prophetic significance to these three gifts. This was not random, at least not in God's eyes and not in God's providence. The significance of gold is just what you would think it is. 
It represents wealth and provision and even royalty. This gift was a symbol of Jesus as king. And frankincense? Frankincense is a costly, sweet-smelling perfume that would have been reserved for very special occasions, like sacrifices in the Jewish culture, in the Eastern culture. So this gift pictures Jesus as the sacrificial sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice who would bear his people's sin in their place. And myrrh, you know what myrrh is? Myrrh is another kind of spice or perfume that when mixed with other spices was used in the preparation of bodies for burial. That is the significance here, foreshadowing his death, which would be in the place of his people for their sins. We sang it this morning. Gold, a king is born today. Incense, God is with us. Myrrh, his death, will make a way. By his blood, he'll win us. The Magi certainly don't know all of this when they give these gifts. They were just worshiping Jesus with their wealth. But in it all, God is superintending each detail to show us who this newborn king is, what he has come to do. And then the story concludes with one more quick detail in verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Why? Because Herod's intention was not to worship, but to kill. The Magi probably don't really know that. Maybe they suspect it, but they don't know. But God knows that, and God superintends the movement of these Magi in order to protect his son, to protect this newborn king. And I suppose the Magi's response is another aspect of their worship, sort of, that when God directed, they obeyed. God is in control of the story here. So the wise men go on their way back to the east, rejoicing as they go and taking the good news back to their land for anyone who will hear. That's the story. And as we come to the end of the story, we need to think about what it means for us today. What are the lessons that we must learn from this text and how must we Respond, And I say lessons in the plural. It's really two bad lessons and one good one. That's really just one big lesson for us. This text is about worship. It's about worship. And if he wasn't going to receive it from the people who were right around him in his own town, God is going to show us how the Gentiles will worship him. And so this text shows us three basic responses to Jesus that are universal to all people of all time. So from this text, we see a picture of ourselves and we are led to evaluate our own responses to Jesus. As we consider each of these characters and how they responded, we are to evaluate our, ho- our, our own selves, our own hearts. And to that end, I want us to see three very simple and basic observations that lead us to examine our hearts. First, some people respond to Jesus with hostility. Okay? There's no command in that. That's an observation. Some people respond to Jesus 
with hostility. We see that in Herod. He has absolutely no interest in even considering that Jesus might be Lord, that he might be God, or that he might be anything else that is significant in his life. To Herod, Jesus is nothing more than a threat to be eliminated. Let's not, think, let's not underestimate the presence of that spirit in our world today. There are many who are not interested at, at all in acknowledging Jesus or any God for that matter. Instead, belief in and worship of Jesus is merely a threat to be suppressed, an obstacle to be overcome, or a weight to be thrown off. That is the spirit of the age today. My question is, do you view Jesus this way? Has that spirit crept into your own life? Do you view him as a hindrance to you? Is he a burden? Is he a threat to your desired way of life? That you either try or wish you could try to throw off in order to get on with what you really want to do. If so, my friends, Jesus is not the problem. Your way of life is the problem. If you have not come to Jesus, and if you have not been forgiven of your sin, and if you have not been rescued from eternity in hell because of your sin, then you are under God's condemnation and judgment. You are in a position of hostility against Him. Jesus is not a threat to be eliminated. He is a hope to be embraced. He is a Savior that you must run to. And so I urge you, if you haven't done so, turn from your hostility. Lay down your selfish ambitions. Acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Submit to Him. Repent of your sin. Cry out to God for mercy. And through this newborn King, this Lord Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven and saved. Now, the second observation we make in this passage is this. Some people respond to Jesus with indifference. It might not be outward hostility. It's just indifference. This is demonstrated by the religious and political leaders. Perhaps this one hits a little closer to home for many of us. We, we may not know too many people who are outwardly hostile toward Jesus. But every one of us is surrounded by people who are indifferent toward Him. Are we not? It's not that they don't like Him. It's that they just don't want to talk about Him. And they don't want to acknowledge that He's anything more than just a good man. And they don't want to hear about Him. And they certainly don't want to give their lives to Him. And there is actually a religious... Christian-looking side to this. This is where it gets very dangerous for us. This indifference shows up even in our own lives when we claim the name of Christ, when we claim to be His followers, and then live with virtually no acknowledgement of Him whatsoever. And unfortunately, there are many people who live like this in the Bible Belt, where Christianity is nothing more than a culture for many. Right? We don't grow in our knowledge of God. We don't grow in our love for Him because we don't continue to pursue it. 
Why? Because we're not interested in giving our lives over to gospel work. We don't pursue holiness or righteousness. We just like the idea that we've been saved from hell. And that's enough. We're content with that. And the rest of our lives we live just for ourselves. Listen, none of that is Christian. It isn't. It's just polished paganism. That's it. It's not Christian. These religious leaders were religious. They were respected as being religious. They were the polished ones. But they were indifferent to the truth about Jesus. And no one who is indifferent to Jesus stays indifferent, ultimately. And that's all just looking at it from a human perspective, right? Where did the religious leaders' indifference lead them? To hostility. That's how this works. Friends, if Jesus is not the central focus of your life, if your life does not revolve around him, then you need to stop and consider your life. You need to do some serious thinking. Can you really be indifferent to him and still be called his disciple? For you, it is time to wake up. It is time to repent and to give your life wholly to Christ. There is no one and there is nothing else worth living for but him. And you cannot remain indifferent and still call yourself a disciple of Christ. That brings us finally to a third observation. This is the positive one. So if we have to wrap this up into one particular lesson, it's this. Avoid those two and do this one. Okay? Some people respond to Jesus with worship. Obviously, we see that in the Magi, but notice that these Magi were Gentiles. And already, already, likely even before his first birthday, we see Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies about himself as Savior, pointing to the fact that he is the Savior of the world, that salvation would be open to the Gentiles through him too. And here we see in the Magi certain people whom God has called and directed, who are now led to seek Jesus and to worship him, and we're reminded that all who truly know God worship Him as Savior and Lord. They worship Jesus as Savior and Lord. You see that? There's no hat tip to Jesus here. There's no casual glance and then going on our merry way. These kingmakers, these highly influential, most influential of all in their society, travel miles I don't know how far it was, hundreds of miles, to fall down at the feet of this baby and worship him as Lord. And this is how each one of us must respond. And as we observe, this worship involves adoration and honor and praise, and it involves the giving of our time and our energy and our resources to the praise and the service of Christ. 
Nothing short of that is truly worship. Nothing short of that is an appropriate response to Christ. Worshiping Jesus involves a life of dedication, not just lip service. Does that describe you? I hope it does. Is your life wholly dedicated to worshiping God and His Son, Jesus Christ? You say, well, how do I know? How do I gauge that? If it's not about putting money in the offering box, if it's not about coming to church even when it's snowy and icy outside, then how do I know? Well, start with this. How much time do you spend seeking Him in prayer and in the earnest study of His Word? It's the most basic thing, isn't it? Does it get more basic than that? And yet, is that not where most of us trip up? We're about to start a new year. Some of you are thinking about embarking on a Bible reading plan, and I commend it to you. Some of you may not be ready to embark on a Bible reading plan because you think, there's no way I can read a Bible in an entire year. And I just want to say this with all the pastoral love and encouragement in my heart. Yes, you actually can. You actually can. And I have a world of resources to give you if you want it. Start with this one. If you have a smartphone, there's an app you can get called Reading Plan. Imagine that. And you can download a reading plan that will take, you can select all kinds of reading plans that will take you through the Bible in a year. And day by day, you can check off what you've done, not to turn your religion into a checklist, but to help you stay on track. It's a few chapters a day. It's not that hard. You actually can do it. And I would commend that to you. And if you can't do it in one year, for some reason, there are plans that will take you through the Bible in two years, three years. You can find it. I would commend it to you because this is one of the most basic ways that we worship the Lord. And if we can't even read his Bible on a regular basis, are we, can we honestly say that we are pursuing him and worshiping him with our lives? And prayer, man, we go off track on that so easily, don't we? Oh, it's so hard. Start with this. If you're struggling there, don't feel like you have to make a three-page prayer list. Write down two or three truths that you know about God and pray them. Then open the Psalms. Pick out Psalm 1, pick out one verse, Psalm 1, verse 1, and pray whatever comes to your mind from that verse, right? Just get your mind focused on the Lord. That's the place to begin. Because this is so often where we go wrong, isn't it? Another question to ask, to gauge, am I really responding in worship, is this. What guides your decision-making? What guides your decision-making? Does Jesus and the mission of the gospel, evangelism and making disciples, does that factor into how you live everyday life? Does that factor into reaching out to one another in a church with a phone call or a text message? Does that factor into where you spend your money and how you spend your time 
and how you prioritize your schedule? Does, does Jesus and His mission govern that for you? Or do we just offer to Him whatever we might happen to have left? What is your passion? What is it that your mind gravitates toward? What do you love talking about with others? Where is your heart? Really? Where is your greatest interest? And how far are you willing to go to draw near to Him and worship Him? There's a question that I would encourage you all to wrestle with before January 1st and then set some goals for 2021. How far am I willing to go to draw near to my God? One of the testimonies that I heard years ago from a, a godly man in another church that we were in who just sort of in passing mentioned that he gets up at 4 or 5 o'clock every, every morning, which was news to me because I was kind of still in my college age years. And I'm like, I didn't know there was a four o'clock that came twice a day. Um, and I said, really? Every day? I said, what about Saturdays? It was four o'clock, five o'clock. I said, really? Why? He said, because I got to a point where I had to have more. I just had to have, it. I, I could not, I had to have more. I had to have a quiet time where I could sit down and read my Bible. He's a busy man. Life caught up to him. I'm not saying four and five o'clock are the godly hours of the day. I can speak from experience. They can be quite ungodly at times. But what stuck out to me was he was willing to sacrifice much needed sleep simply because he had to have more. We'll do that for a lot of things, right? We'll do that. We will sacrifice a lot for a lot of things. What are we willing to sacrifice to know God, to draw near to Him? These magi traveled a long and grueling journey simply to worship Jesus. That is how important it was to them. And they, in their pursuit, set an example for us of the earnestness and intensity we must have in our pursuit of Christ in knowing Him, and in making Him known. Why are there churches about every 30 square feet in our city? And yet Asheville is still known as one of the most ungodly cities this side of the Mississippi. Why? Could it be because we're living in indifference and we need to repent and live a life of wholehearted, dedicated worship. Can you imagine what would happen with us? Just our, this little group right here. If this were the reality every day, all the time. My prayer is that this would be your testimony, that this would be your pursuit in 2021. You say, but that was my pursuit in 2020. Great, then let's take some steps forward and keep because it will not end until you see Jesus face to face. Do not let up. Let's pursue the worship of this Savior with everything that we are and everything that we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together and for your word. We thank you for this.